CC Growth Journeys from Emerging Ecosystems to Global Markets. I'm predicting to see a lot more consumer businesses in Israel over the next five years. Um, we're already you know, investing quite, uh, I don't say aggressively, but we're seeing a lot of deals and we're making a bunch of investments in consumer in Israel. And COVID obviously wreaked havoc on the world over the past couple of years, but I think it's done well for the tech ecosystem in general, basically made it a lot more international, a lot more remote, a lot more inclusive on a global scale, which makes it easier for Israelis to build companies in the consumer space where their target market is very, very far away. David is a partner at Global Founders Capital, a global seed stage fund with offices in 17 countries and more than $2.5 billion assets under management. David has done investments into dozens of companies, most of which in the B2B space, with a special focus on cybersecurity and a couple in the consumer space. Israel has historically been very successful in creating world-leading B2B software companies, but lately we've been seeing a lot in the consumer space as well. In this episode, we'll learn about GFC's structure and investment thesis, discuss the changing landscape of the Israeli ecosystem and its ties to Silicon Valley. Let's jump right in. Hey, David, how are you? Hey, Anis, how's it going, man? Great, man, thanks. Where are you right now? I am actually in Tel Aviv, in Israel. Nice, nice. Is it really warm there? Turkey has been really warm over the past couple of weeks. It is hell on earth here. It's probably been like the hottest day of the year uh, today, and it's just supposed to get actually hotter over the weekend. So not a lot of fun, but definitely good if you're in Tel Aviv and you want to go hang out by the beach. Do you go swim? I mean, when it's really hot, I can't even go to the beach. I have an irrational fear of water. So <laughs> I try to stay away from anything that is like an unpredictable body of water. So a pool is fine, but like, you know, beach, not so much. Uh, I'll stay on the shore. So when it's hot like this, it's just not worth it. It becomes so uncomfortable. So I'll, I'll, I'll avoid it. What happened in your childhood? Why do you have this seophobia? Honestly, I watched too much Baywatch. There are too many scenes of either shark attacks or people drowning. And watching that as, like a, as a young kid, which probably shouldn't have been watching Baywatch as a kid, kind of scarred me from like a, you know, a water experience. So that's why I kind of try to avoid it. And uh, yeah, I mean, I've never been the best swimmer. So even if I would have like, uh, you know, overcome that fear and find myself in, a, in the sea or the ocean, yeah, I think I'd, uh, I think I'd panic. Good luck with that, man. And you live in Israel. <laughs> one of the perks of living in Israel. Yeah, for sure. I want to start off with your personal background. After IDF, you started university and became an angel investor through our crowd at the same time. What triggered you to become an investor while still at college? Right. So I actually started working at our crowd early on when I was 21. And simultaneously, I was in university getting my law degree. Our crowd was actually really, really interesting. It was a platform that did a lot of different things. It combined the whole world of like venture investments with, you know, product marketing, sales, a variety of different things. So for me, like as somebody who grew up, like seeing a lot of the tech ecosystem, primarily through my dad, who's been a, a CFO in, in the VC world for about two decades now. And it was really, really interesting for me. And I kind of got drawn in there just as like an intern. I mean, before university with zero tangible skills, not really understanding anything with the goal of trying to get into dental school, which failed ultimately. My end goal was just to see how things work, right? Kind of see how the sausage is made and, and get exposure. And immediately when I started, I just kind of, you know, caught the bug and, and thought it was super interesting. And it was just at the time where like the Israeli tech ecosystem started becoming incredibly interesting, you know, the emergence of like SaaS in general. This is 2012. So it was a very interesting time to be alive. 
So for me, you know, kind of getting involved there, participating with the investment team, making investments, but also learning what marketing is, what product is, what sales is, what operations are in a growing startup was something that was super interesting for me. So that kind of set the stage for my career so far. I speak to people who are looking to get into venture. I would say like the best thing you can do is get like operating experience in some sort of capacity, not like start a company, but just like work in a company to see how things are done. Because as a venture investor, it's really important to have that context, especially early on when everything's chaos and the floor is on fire. So that was actually super helpful for me. Interesting. And our crowd grew a lot back in 2014. I think Dennis, who I guess was the COO, I'm not sure, from our crowd, came to Turkey for an event. We met during the event. And obviously, because he's Jewish, I'm Jewish. He was like, hey, I want to visit different sites in Istanbul. And this was 2014. And ever since 2014, our crowd became like a billion dollar company. It wasn't like that back then. Yeah, it's it's just crazy. Like looking back, I remember starting when I actually started working there, we still didn't have an office. It was uh, operating out of the CEO, John Medved's basement. So I remember going there a couple of times a week, uh, you know, with my old crappy laptop, trying to figure out stuff to do, learning about systems, programming and anything that would give me a, an edge to, you know, to speak semi-intelligently around a lot of really good, smart people that started the company. And yeah, like looking back, it's just crazy how I remember like if we were able to get somebody deal to raise a million dollars on the platform and somebody to commit more than $10,000, it was just like, uh, you know, sheer jubilation. Everybody was so excited. This is so amazing. Uh, and, and now, you know, the company's doing massive deals, probably invested a couple billion dollars on the platform so far. So if you look at where I was and, you know, the humble beginnings where they are now with, you know, hundreds of employees and the offices worldwide, it's really cool to see. I absolutely cannot take any credit for that whatsoever, even if I wanted to. But it's definitely exciting. And it's like I said, my career started thanks to our crowd. So I definitely appreciate that place uh, very much. Yeah, they had a crazy ride. And after university, you started at Flint Capital as a principal. And then you joined Global Founders Capital about three years ago. And GFC invests across the US, Europe and Israel and has more than 500 portfolio companies. Can you give us some background on the company and the investment thesis? Yeah, for sure. So like you said, I was at Flint for a couple of years which is also a really interesting experience because it was a pivot from like our crowd, which is a very you know unique platform to just a traditional VC fund focusing on A rounds. So it was a great learning opportunity for me. I learned a lot, eventually, you know, became their principal in Israel and managed their operations here, which is important because it kind of taught me how to do things from the ground up from scratch with limited resources and in solo, which was great. Made a bunch of really good investments. The firm's doing very, very well. Uh, still in close contact with them. Uh, we've actually done a few co-investments together during my time at GFC. But joining GFC early 2019 was, you know, a really, really exciting opportunity and actually got connected to them through a former colleague from our crowd. So again, everything comes back to our crowd eventually, who connected me with their partner in San Francisco, told me that they were looking at Israel. And for me, like not knowing too much about them, you know, started doing the digging, understanding the interesting history, how like the firm sort of evolved over time from, you know, the rocket internet sort of behemoth that did venture building all over the world with massive success into, you know, like an actual standard VC that is GFC. So a lot of interesting internal expertise, seen a lot of things, know how to build companies. So the opportunity seems really exciting. And just like to give a little bit of background about GFC and like how we do things. So GFC is an international VC firm. Uh, we're managing about $2.5 billion today in total, operating over a second fund right now, which is a $1.5 billion fund. You mentioned uh, many locations worldwide. So Last time I counted, we were at 17. I think it might be more. The main ones are in San Francisco in the US. We've got an office there. We've got team members in LA, New York, and Austin as well. In South America, we've got a team, a pretty big team in, in Sao Paulo covering all of Brazil. And then we recently hired somebody in Mexico as well. Europe is our main stronghold where we have offices in London, Paris, Stockholm, Berlin, and Munich. 
and then a bunch of other team members across the continent as well. Singapore and Jakarta are in the sort of like the Southeast Asia sort of area. Uh, we've got a team in Beijing as well. And then obviously here in Israel and Tel Aviv covering the Israeli market. So that's, I guess, like the global sort of reach of the firm. And from a strategy perspective, so GFC has always been described as, as a multi-stage, multi-sector fund, which essentially means we do anything. Having said that, we, we heavily focus on early stage. So anything that has to do with, you know, young, early stage businesses, you know, I guess in the past, I used to define it between pre-seed to A. Now, I guess it's more pre-seed seed, especially since A rounds are so large and out of control these days. So the goal is essentially to be first money in, right? not first institutional money, but rather first money in backing founders when they have barely an idea. It's just a really, really strong team where we have a really good chemistry and good dynamics with. And again, that is the main focus for us. We're a very entrepreneur driven investor where it's really, really easy to kind of build a case around a specific thesis or market, especially if you're bought in, like you'll basically create some sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, at least in your mind, where you think this makes sense because of X, Y, Z, and you'll you know pull in the right reports to build the case. But at the end of the day, so early on, the only real indicator of, of success is the team. And not just you know their CV, if they work for Uber or Google or whatever it is, but rather just like their, their personality, even their demographic background, and your specific chemistry with them. So when we analyze early stage investments, we spend a lot of time with the team trying to build a really strong relationship very, very fast, you know, build sort of like a crash course and get to know you with the founders because, you know, businesses pivot, they change, they evolve over time, but the founders do not, hopefully, right? Unless they leave, which is a completely different story. Um, so for us, really, really, really heavily indexing towards the team and everything else is super flexible. That's from like a, from a stage perspective, sector-wise, historically, GFC's done a lot on the consumer side of things. So, you know, if you look at our portfolio in the past, we've got really big companies coming out of the e-commerce space, direct consumer brands, just B2C in general has been where we used to spend most of our time. And in the past couple of years, I think the past three, four years, GFC has been trying to expand more onto the enterprise B2B side of things. We've been doing this as GFC since probably 2013. And in the past, like since 2018, we've been cranking it up on the enterprise. And, you know, when it comes to my activity in Israel, to sort of segue to the GFC Israel, I joined the firm in early 2019. And I remember when I met the team prior to me joining, I basically said to them, guys, you know, Israel's a great market, but there isn't any consumer in Israel. You're not going to find consumer businesses in Israel. And at the time, that was the case. When the answer was, yes, absolutely, we're not anticipating consumer businesses. We just want to invest in Israel because we see what's happening there. So you know, that was a relief for me because it would make my job increasingly harder if I had to focus solely on B2C. And you know, if you look at GFC in Israel, historically, we've made some good investments that were you know, very successful, companies like Dynamic Yield and Next Insurance. But typically, the access to those deals came a little bit too late. At the time, again, it was definitely difficult to do things remotely, to invest in companies when you're not, when you don't have boots on the ground, especially in Israel where the ecosystem is so tightly knit and very network oriented. So when I joined, there were basically three goals. The first goal was just to get into Israel with some sort of physical presence in general to really start competing for deals with boots on the ground. The second one was to do a lot more early stage in Israel, you know, which is sort of like a, a direct sort of outcome of the first goal. And then third and most importantly is to start doing a lot more B2B and enterprise in Israel where it wouldn't be just for the sake of investing in Israel, but rather leveraging that for our global activity. So if we're trying to you know, increase our exposure to enterprise or security or, or just B2B plays in general around the world, our activity in Israel has actually been quite helpful, whether it's you know, access to talent or access to the, you know, the experts that exist in Israel in different disciplines. So many times we would try to compete for deals and the fact that we had presence here and we'd be able to make intros to the right people would actually help us win deals that were not Israeli related. So those are the three main goals with regards to Israel and GFC, and it's actually been working quite well so far. 
this interesting thing has happened and it's sort of, you know, a bunch of reasons why it started evolving. But we're seeing a lot more consumer in Israel. I think Lemonade was a perfect example of a, finally an Israeli company was able to build a really strong consumer business out of Israel and not just like an Israeli founder in the U.S. And since then, we've been seeing some sort of, you know, generational effect where, you know, first employees or second employees, third employees at the at companies like Lemonade are leaving to start their own businesses. And they, they leave with that, with that deep understanding and expertise and DNA of a strong consumer business. So, I mean, I'm predicting to see a lot more consumer businesses in Israel over the next five years. Um, we're already you know, investing quite, uh, I don't say aggressively, but we're seeing a lot of deals and we're making a bunch of investments in consumer in Israel. And COVID obviously wreaked havoc on the world over the past couple of years, but I think it's done well for the tech ecosystem in general, basically made it a lot more international, a lot more remote, a lot more inclusive on a global scale, which makes it easier for Israelis to build companies in the consumer space where their target market is very, very far away, as opposed to like historically, you know, enterprise and B2B, you have like the playing grounds here with all the big tech companies. But even more so, it kind of proved that you don't necessarily have to be um, an Israeli company that immediately relocates the core of its operation to the US and you can build things as like the headquarter in Israel was just like a sales and marketing field office in the US. Whereas in the past, it was headquarters in the US and an R&D sort of operation in Israel. So that's sort of like the, the long story around GFC and, you know, a little bit more context and color about what we're doing in Israel. But yeah, it's been an exciting uh, couple of years with GFC. It's very interesting to see consumer startups emerge from Israel, collecting the US market. I mean, that hasn't been the case historically, as you've said. And I also agree with the fact that early stage investing is only about the founders and your love of the problem. So I feel like more and more how I see deals is, do I like the founders? Do I like the problem that they're attacking? And whether the strategy or the product that they're building is right or not, I mean, I care less and less into the types of products that they're trying to build or have already built. It's more on the founder and the problem level that I have to fell in love with. And Israeli startups do mostly target the U.S. market, and we see founders relocate to the U.S. early on in the company lifecycle. These startups become multinational much early on compared to their European or U.S. competitors. What are some of the advantages and disadvantages of a founder relocating early on in the company lifecycle? I think, again, like historically, that is true. You see the founders go to the U.S. as soon as possible. I think you're seeing more and more large companies being built in Israel where the co-founders stay in Israel. AppsFlyer is a perfect example of that, where the, for the most part, the large portion of the company and the co-founders are in Israel. Again, the advantages of moving quickly out of Israel is, you know, kind of getting out of that self-fulfilling bubble that is Israel because you have so many tech companies here that are, you know, actual like international brands, but they're local branches, whether it's Google or Amazon or Facebook or Apple. There is some sort of like bias effect that happens when you're working with the local brands here. Even as an adventure investor, when, you know, they're coming to me with a design partner that is, you know, one of the FAMGAs or, or whatever it is, you're saying like, well, yeah, I'm going to discount that heavily because you were probably together with that person in the military or you know him from your neighborhood growing up. So like the, the main advantage is actually like, you know, test the overall hypothesis in the actual field or the sales field in the target market, primarily because, again, historically, Israeli companies have been going after the U.S. market first. I think it's still going to be the case. You're seeing more and more companies going after Western European markets, maybe sometimes more activity in the APAC region. But again, for the most part, the first target market is the US for a variety of reasons. Again, it's a disadvantage, but it's also, it's sort of, sort of mitigated, especially for the past year. Corona's changed a lot. I think before Corona, it was a disadvantage because you're creating a separation between the co-founders. Typically, like the CEO will, will relocate to the States and one of the other co-founders will stay behind. There's a huge time zone difference. You're at the risk of creating like two separate cultures and DNAs. Americans are very different than Israelis, you know, 
I think Israelis and Turks are very similar in like the culture and the mentality and just like the Mediterranean sort of aspect. But Americans are definitely very different. So that early move on can really sometimes create like two companies under one brand, which could be problematic. Nowadays, especially with COVID uh, sort of creating this like acceleration around uh, remote, it's not such a big deal, right? Because everyone's working remote. Like you can hire a U.S. salesperson in Austin and you can hire a U.S. salesperson in Denver. And, you know, the CEO doesn't necessarily have to move. You can stay in Israel. The biggest issue is, is like you do have to have some sort of like official representation in the target market. And it's difficult with, you know, travel restrictions coming in and out as COVID will stays with us uh, for the next couple of years. So it's not clear cut. I personally am still an advocate of, you know, setting a significant operation in the U.S., led by one of the co-founders. It's not a prerequisite anymore where like you say, if you don't do this, then we have an issue. Whereas in the past, if like an Israeli founder is like, I have no intention of moving to the US, that could be a red flag. But you know, I do think it can be done remotely. And I think as Israel continues to mature from a technology perspective, it's going to be less common for the CEO to be in the US and more common for everything to be centralized here in Israel and just have like a skilled team member, like CRO, CMO, that is managing like the North American location of the firm, if that makes sense. Interesting. I see the same shift happening in East Central Eastern Europe as well. I mean, I haven't seen it in Turkey yet, but also Central Eastern Europe. Previously, what happened was a founder had to relocate to the Bay Area. Then that relocation moved to New York or Boston because of less time zone differences. So you would have an office in New York, Boston. One of the founders would relocate there. And then more and more what I see is the founder, he or she is more hybrid where he or she moves between Romania and the US frequently, but he doesn't or she doesn't actually have to make the move. And the Israel that I knew of from my childhood was much more Middle Eastern from a cultural perspective. But as I look into the tech industry, I see that the culture has almost fully Americanized and Israeli companies can easily do business in the US. How do you think that cultural shift happened in the tech industry over the past few decades? I think it's driven by a bunch of things. Obviously, it's driven by the presence of these like large tech companies in Israel that are becoming more and more significant. I think in the past, if you had like a small Google office, now I think they employ maybe a thousand people in Israel. Intel employs, I think, 20,000 people in Israel, if I recall correctly. You've got these large blue chip international tech companies that are present here. And I think they are they try to maintain some sort of like standardized culture in the workforce. And I think that helps a lot. If you look at also just Israel as like a, from a demographic perspective, there's a lot of migration of, you know, Jewish communities from North America or from Western Europe that move to Israel. And over time, you know, it creates some sort of like melting pot where these Western cultures kind of mesh with the, the Middle Eastern culture. And it creates some sort of hybrid where you become like a twofer, like a, somebody who can, you know, interact at a, at a very like scrappy level in the region, but also can talk very Western, like very American. Like I myself, I was born in Israel. My mom's from Michigan. My dad's from London. So growing up in a very Anglo household, you learn how to speak Anglo, right? You learn how to speak American, you learn how to understand American. But then on the flip side, you grew up with Israelis, you grew up with like a very Israeli culture. So you know how to like go in and out between those two settings. It's like, you know, dark mode, light mode sort of uh, analogy, if you will. And I think like historically, Israelis were a little bit less versed in speaking American. So like they would think a, a pitch meeting went fantastic, but in practice it didn't because they don't know how to like read between the lines of like, oh, sure, this is very interesting. We'll get back to you soon, where they, they assume that that means, you know, you'll get back to me soon. But in practice, it means that that was a failure. That pitch meeting sucked. <laughs> so I think like over the years, it's just a matter of getting more used to just cultural nuances, but also evolving from within. So it's sort of like a, an external and internal sort of development over time that sort of meet in the middle and create much better like readiness to conduct yourself on an international level, which again, makes it really easy 
for you again to build companies in Israel that are self-sustainable in Israel. And I think that's what we're going to continue to see. Interesting. And Israel is also one of the leading countries in terms of number of unicorns. And we've seen a number of them get acquired by U.S. giants almost on a monthly basis. And as the ecosystem kind of matured in Israel, we've seen that a lot of the Israeli companies refuse to get acquired and do an IPO on Nasdaq instead to continue to stay as a standalone company. Where do you think that trend is headed? I think it's going to get stronger. That trend is going to get stronger. I think also like it also affects how VC operates in Israel. Like you said, historically, if there was a $300 million exit, that would have been fantastic. When Google acquired Waze for a billion dollars, it was just like a monumental event at a historical level in Israel, because we haven't really seen many acquisitions at that level. I mean, ICQ was $800 million, but that was like in the early 2000s. And that was just like, that was an outlier. Again, it's also affected by just the global trend that is happening on valuations and fundraising and just the available capital in the market and just the proliferation of tech as an inherent part of our lives. Valuations are just becoming a lot greater. So if in the past, you know, getting acquired by a tech company was a good outcome for 300, for a couple hundred million dollars, today it's considered a failure. So, you know, I think there's a lot of money available in the market. Um, a lot of international VCs are getting a lot more active in Israel. Again, thanks to COVID, the sort of remote investment option has become a lot more relevant for Israel. So you're seeing, you know, whether it's Tiger or Insight or Edition or Kotu or being a lot more active in Israel, in addition to the traditional tier one VCs that, are, that have been investing in Israel for many years, it makes it a lot easier for you to say no to an exit. Whereas a GFC, for example, in the past, like, one of our portfolio companies got a really, really attractive acquisition offer from a large tech company. And you know, our, our instinct was, you know, say no, we'll just give you money so you can run faster and triple your valuation over time. So you know, that's sort of like the, the attitude of GFC and how we try to do things. But it's just becoming more and more of, an, of a possibility with, any com- with many more investors because there's so much money on the market and people are really beginning to understand that the next generation of Fortune 500 companies are going to be tech companies, are going to be software companies, and not, you know, CapEx heavy companies. So if I had to predict, I'd see a lot more publicly traded companies in Israel, meaning NASDAQ and NICE publicly traded companies, a lot more self-sustainable businesses, a lot more M&A that's happening by Israeli companies. Perfect example is Tabula acquiring a company uh, for $800 million a couple of weeks ago. We're going to see a lot more of that. JFrog actually bought an Israeli company. JFrog is an Israeli company, is publicly traded, bought an Israeli company called Vidu for $300 million. So we're going to see a lot more of this. And I think it's going to be fantastic for the tech ecosystem because you're going to have self-sustainability. You're going to have companies that are self-reliant and not reliant on whether Google's hitting their targets or Intel's hitting their targets. And I think it's just going to be healthy for the ecosystem. And how that affects venture is actually quite interesting because in the past, when you used to model out you know, your fund and how many investments you're going to do, what your equity threshold needs to be from your first check, how you retain your ownership over time with pro rata and yada, 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 you typically would model out like the ideal outcome being a billion dollar exit and then like work backwards from there to understand what what numbers make sense from a check size perspective. So like you'd have to have 25% of the company do a pro rata and then assuming you don't have sidecar and and LPs that would like to double down, you'd get diluted over time, maybe end up with like high single digits at an acquisition and then, you know, return your fund based on that one. And then the, you know, two, three ones that are a little bit more modest acquisitions would return, you know, the two, three X of your fund. That's sort of how like a traditional model would have worked. Nowadays, what we're seeing is because companies are aiming for the fences in a much more aggressive way from a valuation perspective, where now $10 billion is not even just like a possibility, it's actually realistic that it's already happening. You know, Rapid just raised around $10 billion valuation and, you know, the sky's the limit for a company like that. You know, as a VC, you can afford to take 
smaller ownerships in companies at the first stage, knowing that even if you're getting diluted to like low single digits, you're still aiming for a massive outcome, which is a, you know, a nine digit company or 11 digit company, if that makes sense. So, you know, we're seeing that as a really interesting sort of development, which what it also changes is dynamics in early stages, really VC, which was typically very uncollaborative. You'd have one fund taking the most, maybe carving out a little bit of space for the, for strategic angels. And then, you know, taking it on their own and everyone else is, else is left out. Or what we were seeing, at least I was seeing in the past couple of years before Corona, even in the Bay Area and the U.S. in general, is that, you know, rounds are a lot more syndicated. There's a lot of room for smaller checks. People were seeing that because th- those valuations already existed in the U.S. and they weren't really coming to Israel yet. Now that they're coming here, it basically makes it a lot more favorable for smaller VCs that want to get the, you know, the million dollar check in the seed rounds because it's a possibility, A, from a, just like an end exit value potential and B, because seed rounds are just monstrously growing. Uh, if in the past a $5 million seed round was insane, now what's the standard in a big seed round is like eight or nine. And we're already seeing $20 million seed rounds for cyber companies that are raising, are basically jumping over the seed and, and A round straight to the B round that was like five, six years ago. So I think all that creates a, an opportunity, not just for early stage companies to build really massive self-sustainable businesses in Israel, but also for Early, early, early stage VCs, smaller, you know, anywhere between like 30 to $70 million funds to, you know, play together with large firms um, and participate in rounds where they don't have to have that 25% ownership uh, because they, they can't really get that anymore with like two, $3 million tickets and play together with larger firms. So it's, it's definitely an interesting period, interesting developments that are happening over time. And it's exciting. Yeah, it's interesting. In the US, um, Five Fund Startups did a bunch of like hundreds of investments out of its first, second, and third fund in the US. And with that approach, for some companies, we could see that sky was the actual limit. I mean, this company can become a decacorn company, can even become a $100 billion company like post-IPO. That was a potential. But when you look into Europe or Turkey or Israel, it wasn't an option. So all of our investment theses or investment committee memos, et cetera, revolved around the fact that whether this company can become a $100 million company or whether there's a potential for this company to be a, be a unicorn or not. Now, we, as you said, we have been seeing decacorns emerge almost everywhere throughout Europe or Middle East, even Africa. Exactly. And I think for founders, it's also really interesting because in the past, like you'd probably, at least in Israel, you were limited to taking one firm. Maybe you're able to get in another firm with a smaller ticket. I always try to support founders to take as many you know, value-add investors or different types of investors early on, bring more smart people around the table. I think it's a dissemination of power on the one hand, but also a dissemination of opinion where and you have more people with different opinions. And you know how it is with, with, with us Jews. It's like, you know, two Jews, three opinions. So I think it's important to have like more people around the table to give different vantage points, different perspectives. In the past, that wasn't really possible from a round dynamic perspective. Now it is. So, you know, you can have four or five VCs in a round where one's leading or two are co-leading and the rest are like chiming in with, with smaller checks. And they all are basically working for you because especially the small ones who would want to increase their position over time, they got to prove their value because there's so much money out there. And it happens to us at GFC as well. Like, well, we'll take a smaller ticket and we really, we work very, very, very hard for our portfolio companies. So as, you know, when the A round or B round happens, they remember us favorably and they want us in versus just like saying, sorry guys, Andreessen's leading it and we don't really care about you because you haven't really delivered any value. So that's like kind of what we really, really try to do. I mean, I think it's helpful to the founders because they just get, you know, it's a force multiplier. It's an army of, of value add that is more, you know, personally driven. I think, you know, firms can say they have value add Till the cows come home. At the end of the day, it depends on like who's making the investment, who the partner is, what sort of dynamic and relationship you have, and, and how hungry that person is. Because you know, 
value creation is great, especially if you try to institutionalize it, but it's, it's more of an art than a science. Uh, so it honestly depends on the type of person that is there for you as, as a running partner. Definitely. And GFC invests globally uh, throughout your 16 plus offices. Can you compare different geographies from an opportunities and from a talent perspective? And are there any certain themes or industries that emerge in certain countries, for example, gaming in Turkey? Yeah. So, you know, the, the interesting thing about GFC is we're super collaborative and we try to help each other on a global scale, but we're also very autonomous. So each individual person focuses on his own specific region. Sometimes you have overlap. So for example, I tend to look at a lot of cyber deals that are not Israeli, not because I'm a cyber expert, but rather because I have a lot more exposure to cyber here in Israel. I think, you know, in the past, at least Israel was a lot more indexed towards technology, really hardcore technology versus, you know, what you see in whether it's in the US or even like emerging markets, it was more like, you know, innovative business models, you know, Uber style businesses that are taking like commoditized technology and software and applying it to traditional businesses that don't work. I think what I'm seeing right now is just a complete like blur of the lines where everything is anything. We're seeing a lot more tech first companies emerging from areas where we wouldn't really think were traditional places. And we're seeing a lot of, you know, innovative business models coming out of Israel as well. So in the past, I would see more tech in Israel and more like business model innovation. And, you know, in other places, I'm seeing everything of everything now, which is really interesting. What I do think is, you know, big opportunity. And I think it's going to start happening uh, in the next couple of years. And, you know, Eastern European countries, especially, you know, Ukraine or Bulgaria, we're going to see a lot more companies come out of there because at least historically, a lot of Israelis would outsource uh, dev work to the Ukraine, to Croatia, to Bulgaria. And I think it's great for them because they get exposure to real companies, but then they finally realize, well, we can do this ourselves. Like we can also do entrepreneurship. So I think, you know, funds that are looking for untapped markets, like that region is definitely one to focus on. And, you know, there have been a lot of success stories coming out of those regions, but not enough, at least directly correlated to the amount of like talent and brain power that exists in these areas. So I think that's definitely a market that I would focus more on. We are focusing more on GFC in that specific region. But like I said, I think globalization of workforce and like work from anywhere and do whatever has created a, a situation where everything can come from anywhere. As far as like specific trends, like they come and go, right? You know, the buy now, pay later sort of trend is insane right now. We're seeing like buy now, pay later for X, buy now, pay later for a specific geography. We've invested in a bunch of them that are doing really well. Which is funny because in Israel, buy now, pay later was always a standard that was like dictated by the credit card companies and it was never a thing. So yeah, we're, we're just looking at the rest of the world and saying like, where have you guys been for the past 20 years? This is how we've been living our lives. So, you know, that's an interesting trend. It's hard to predict trends, right? Because the moment you understand there's a trend, you've probably missed it. So I think it's just a matter of, again, you know, betting on teams with their gut feeling and their intuition. We try not to be thesis driven internally at GFC because, you know, that's the job of the entrepreneur. Obviously, like if we have ideas and you know different like backgrounds in different space it helps us to analyze it analyze the opportunity better but again we're not the entrepreneurs we're the investors the entrepreneurs are the ones that need to come with the ideas the trend predictions so uh that's what we're looking for we're looking for those smart people yeah whenever i'm looking into a deal if i can fully understand the value chain and the problem and the technology shift that's been coming if i can fully understand it then it's probably becoming mundane and i'm probably too late um in the Exactly. Exactly. It's definitely the case. I try to make sure that I'm the dumbest person in the room. And if I'm not, then I know that I'm in the wrong room. Yeah. And if there's something that I can't understand, it's because the person, the entrepreneur that's in front of me can't dumb it down enough for me. I mean, it's like this guy right. has done a PhD and I'm a second grader trying to understand what he's up to. And obviously he can't explain. That's true. That's true. It's funny because, you know, meeting all these smart Israeli entrepreneurs and 
somebody like me who's just basically been a career VC, they're all telling me about their like incredible achievements in their life, whether it's what they did in the military or, you know, their PhDs from the Weizmann Institute or getting their MBA at Harvard and then, you know, coding since they were four years old. And I'm like, ah, oh, man, what am I doing with my life? What, what, what was I doing at four years old? I was just an idiot back then. So it's good to like surround yourself with people like that, where, you know, you kind of make you question your life decisions. But uh, that's the type of quality of people we're looking for. Exactly. Well, David, this has been a pleasure. Thanks for joining the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much, man. It's been great. I'm pretty sure we're going to have a number of co-investments with GFC in our new fund. They are very active and are increasing their presence throughout the globe. David is great at spotting early stage opportunities and most of his seed investments over the past two years at GFC went on to raise larger Series A rounds. I believe he already invested in a couple of future unicorns. Let's wait and see. To stay in the loop, go to our website, getcc.com, or follow us at GetCC'd on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube.